everybody, whether you're the president of a company or the paperboy, everybody has the exact same amount of time. You and I both have 24 hours a day. No more, no less. The question is, what do you do with your time? Real quick, my friends, go to zbooks.co and go get my new book. It's called The Power to Publish. It's at the top of the website. Just click on the link and it'll take you there. Okay, back to that podcast. Welcome to ZBooks Successful Authors Podcast. And today I have another very motivating guest, a very strong person who has seen the depths of hell and come back and conquered a lot of things. So let's do some conquering with Rachel Style. Hello, Rachel. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's great to have you. I love your story and your struggle. And um, uh, my previous guest, Veronica, uh, told me about you. And I, I looked at your stuff. So, oh, I have to get you on my podcast. So, <sighs> so yeah. Um, yeah. So you are in Michigan? I am. I love Michigan. We're surrounded by the Great Lakes. So we have a lot of coastal beach lake mm-hmm. fronts. And it's we get all sorts of weather, but I really like being here. <laughs> That's nice. I just saw in the newspaper today or websites, there's a ice tsunami rolling on the coast somewhere there. Oh, wow. I haven't heard of an ice tsunami, but I wouldn't be surprised. We've had a lot of weird weather patterns these past few weeks. We had a huge snow blizzard and then ice storms and gusts like huge gusts of wind so it's been a really crazy february <laughs> yeah yeah um, i have to check out where i saw that but um it looked pretty killer just this huge bank of ice rolling up but uh, yeah it gets cold up there huh oh yeah definitely <laughs> cool so um let's talk about uh your story your demons and the your what you had to conquer it's a new thing for my podcast, but there is also a book involved here uh, towards the end. Uh, so you're the author of Running in Silence, mm-hmm. and you had um, uh, a bout with eating disorders. So how about we just you just tell us from the beginning? Yeah. So I've always been a perfectionist. I was born a perfectionist, I would say. Um, had a lot of anxiety growing up. I also started running from a very young age and associated myself, like my whole identity as a runner. So that in combination with the perfectionism sort of started this weird relationship with food as a senior in high school. And I thought if I restricted and controlled food well, that I would run better. And So I went off to college and competed and was doing really, really well for a while, but also losing a lot of weight, uh, really restricting my food. I started like this raw food diet Hmm. and a fruitarian diet down the road called 30 bananas a day. Wow. Yeah. So I was kind of fooled into doing these macronutrient diets and these people 
leading these up, we're talking about how this is a lifestyle, not a diet. So there's a lot of disguise with it. And then I found myself binge eating, which is eating enormous quantities of food mm-hmm. and feeling very out of control. There's a lot of shame and guilt associated with it. So you so, were doing this to control your weight for the running? Yeah, it had a huge connection to my running. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't initially try to lose weight for the running. I sort of had you know, poor body image and thought I could just stand to lose a few pounds. Mm-hmm. And even that thought can eventually go out of control down the road. So when was your, your aha moment when you realized something? Um, there were a few things along the way. I would say it was hard. There wasn't one distinct aha moment Mm -hmm. because when I was restricting food, I felt like something might be wrong, but I wasn't sure exactly what it was because I thought this isn't an eating disorder. I'm not at a super low weight. I'm not in the hospital. I'm not throwing up my food. And then when I started binge eating, I thought this is the complete opposite of an eating disorder because people, you know, they lose weight, they don't gain weight, and they don't eat too much food. So, but, you know, the binge eating continued to happen constantly. So I think my breaking point, I would say more so was that because I didn't like that part of the eating disorder and I wanted the binge eating to stop. So I guess the aha moment down the road was more when I started coming out about these issues through my website, runninginsilence.com. I started a blog there Mm -hmm. and other people messaged me and said that they could really relate to what I was talking about, which at that time I thought, oh my gosh, I'm the only athlete in the world struggling with this, this way. (laughs) And then I found out, oh, there's a bunch of other people who are just really silent about it. Yeah, that would be the aha moment. (laughs) Aha. Okay. So, um, how was your performance during this time? Did, um, did you notice your running performance going down? Yeah. Unfortunately, the initial weight loss mm-hmm. boosted my performance, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. And mm-hmm. this doesn't happen the same way to everyone, but for me, it did. Except the biggest thing here is that it's not sustainable. I, it only lasted like maybe a year before I started to binge eat, I was running into a lot of injuries. And you'll see this happening over and over again with many athletes who restrict themselves too much. Hmm. Their performances do eventually go down. So definitely not sustainable. And I found that when I started to gain a little bit more weight back, I was a faster middle distance runner. So like the half mile, you know, I was gaining some muscle back. So there's a lot of different factors at play there. And I think if I would have been more consistently healthy through my college running, I would have been performing a lot better. (laughs) Uh So for, yeah, because for us newbies um, or family members, what are the signs you look for or what were your, because I was, I was talking about performance thinking maybe there's an indicator there because a lot of people don't, realize it or want to realize that they have a problem, right? So what are the signs and tells? Yeah. So for some people, their performances do decline when their eating disorder begins. So that could potentially be a sign. Mm -hmm. But some other, you want to look more for behavior changes. So if someone's isolating themselves, maybe they're not coming to dinners or out to eat as much with family members or friends, 
they seem a little more depressed or sad. Um, and it, sometimes like eating disorders are very secretive. And I put on a show that I was completely fine because I thought I was fine, especially when it first started. It seemed like, wow, this is really working for me because the eating disorder was giving something back to me at that time. And that's why I was hiding it. That's why I was keeping it a secret. Hmm. So it gets complicated and everyone's eating disorders manifest a little differently. Yeah. But definitely the isolation. I was talking about food a lot. I was very preoccupied with food. I don't think anyone... Like my social life wasn't super good because all I could talk about was running and food. Um, yeah, those are the biggest factors. I was pretty boring looking back. <laughs> you know, in Germany, we, we say um, Pferdefrau, uh, a horse woman who only talks about her horse. So, so you were a running girl. Huh? Yeah, yep. Yeah. You, um, you, you just mentioned it was, it was complicated, right? right? You went through several phases, anorexia, bulimia, etc. Can you explain that? Yep. So anorexia, a lot of people often think, oh, it's a rich white girl getting really, really skinny <laughs> in the hospital on an IV drip. And anorexia is actually, it can affect anyone at any body weight. It's obviously a mental illness, mental disorder, mm -hmm. um, but it's also not taking in enough calories for what we need. So that was the biggest indicator of my anorexia. I would also say I dealt with a little bit of orthorexia, which is the preoccupation with the purity of food. That mm -hmm. was a smaller phase, but definitely when I was doing the raw food diet, I was so scared that if I ate cooked food, I would suddenly gain weight or get injured. And then binge eating, which mm -hmm. is eating without uh, compensatory behaviors. So I wasn't you know, trying to exercise it off or purging it through vomiting, but eventually down the road, it turned into bulimia, which was like trying to exercise to burn those calories or vomiting. And that transition, like through all those eating disorders is not uncommon. A lot of people don't talk about the other side of the eating disorder because I think we, I hate to say it, but we almost do, um, praise anorexia or like value trying to lose weight so much in our society. Right. So not necessarily praise anorexia, but thin bodies we see often as someone having control. Yeah. And Idolize. Someone, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And anyone who's gained weight or, you know, it, it's just seen as something that's lazy or lack of discipline, which is absolutely not true, especially for people struggling with eating disorders. So you mentioned something interesting, orthorexia. I've never heard of that. What was that? Orthorexia. Yep. Um, so that is the obsession with the purity of food. Mm -hmm. And that is not yet a diagnosable eating disorder through the DSM, which is the mm -hmm. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental yeah. Illness. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it just started coming out. I mean, I had first heard of it in 2011. And they're having more news articles about it. There was something in Vogue magazine mm -hmm. a few months ago about orthorexia, but it's not as well known as like anorexia and bulimia. It sounds like California, you know, an obsession yeah. with skinny people in Hollywood and then uh, purity of food. It sounds like my daily conversation when I'm back in California, you know. Yeah. Well, how is it? In, huh? Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, how is it in Michigan? Is, is, uh, 
I mean, uh, it's, it's hard to compare, right? But um, yeah. there's a lot of environmental factors too, right? Yeah. Well, I see it more on social media where people mm. are talking about, oh, I'm doing the paleo diet. I'm doing keto. I'm, mm. Some people are doing the raw food diet or Whole30, like all these different diets that encourage you to take out certain food groups and that you'll supposedly be healthier if you do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's how orthorexia is sort of playing out. And a lot of people think, oh, that person's just trying to be healthy. And maybe some people are doing, you know, some people have allergies that or certain illnesses or something that they need to actually take out a certain type of food. But in most cases, it's just people kind of disguising ways in which to restrict food. Hmm. Interesting. I was um, reading and, and rummaging around in your website, of course, <laughs> and uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of shame involved. And this was interesting to me because you were active and you decided to conquer it and you used your blog or what was the role there? Yeah, initially it was the blog. I started it in December 2012. Mm -hmm. And I think I only mostly started it because I've always wanted to be an author and writer since very young. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, writing about these experiences that are embarrassing to me and shameful is going to produce better writing. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I started the website to work on my writing and be vulnerable and found that there's a deeper message behind it all. And over time it turned into this recovery openness. Um, and it showed me how being open about it was so important and critical to my own recovery and overcoming those fears. So definitely a combination of the writing factor along with recovery, helping other people to be more open and yeah. how, how intense was the shame? Were you hiding or what, what's that like? Yeah, because my eating disorder started in 2010 and mm -hmm. I didn't first talk about it until um, with my mom in January 2012. So two years is long. A lot of people wait way longer. Mm -hmm. um, so there was... It took time. I think it was even a few months later until I told a teammate who was the second person I'd ever told. And then maybe another four months later, I told my coach. And then I started the website a few months after that. Mm -hmm. um, I hope I got those months right. But oh. <laughs> yeah, it was just like a progression of slowly yeah. telling more people and then suddenly the world on the internet. And you just, it's a gradual process. Like you just get used to telling more and more people and it does reduce mm -hmm. the shame over time. So yeah. What is the best thing then that a family member can do when you, to support you or a person with eating disorders, because maybe they're approaching you first or you told them or. Yeah. I approached my mom first. She didn't recognize the eating disorder. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think like, wow, you guys were the parents. How did you miss this? But I think mm -hmm. parents are in a really tough spot because they usually see their kids every single day. You don't notice these gradual changes over time. I'd always been a really anxious kid. I'd mm -hmm. always tried to eat very healthy. So mm -hmm. she saw this as just Rachel being Rachel. It wasn't that weird or different. And I had gained some weight. So mm -hmm. my parents probably thought it was just a little bit of weight fluctuation in college. 
Yeah. So when I first told my mom, I did it through an email because I was too scared to tell her in person. <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, her, her response at first was, uh, not the best response. She was oh. kind of like, Oh, well you just got to, keep track of how much you're eating and you'll eventually lose weight again, which you shouldn't tell someone with an eating disorder, any of those things. But, <laughs> you know, she thought she was being helpful. She said, Oh, we can get you back to your race weight. Cool. Um, and then she saw that clearly wasn't helpful for me. So she had another conversation, which I'm so glad, like she came back to try again. And the best thing she did for me was offer her listening ear and support yeah. and did get me professional help down the road. And were you actively hiding or from for your parents or the eating from your parents? Um, I hid the restriction and binge eating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because I was ashamed. I thought that my appetite was broken yeah. and I didn't want them to think or see that I had that brokenness, I guess. Yeah. It just felt shameful. So that's, that's why I ask because, you know, if, if you're brave enough to come out and, and, and tell them, uh, I can imagine telling your father or me, you know, I'm working on my car and then I'll just say, well, you just got to eat more, you know, what? <laughs> and that doesn't help, does it? So, yeah. what, so the best thing, what's the best thing? They, first of all, take you serious and listen, or what do you think? Yeah, well, they started going to like parent support groups. My mom was reading books about eating disorders. So they handled it really well. Like looking back, they knew they didn't know much about this. So they decided to start to try to understand it better. And I'm so thankful for that without yeah. the intention of like knowing that they could fully understand it. It's okay that they didn't understand everything completely. I mostly just needed their support yeah. and their willingness to understand, mm -hmm. um, that eating disorders don't come in a certain body shape or size. You can have an eating disorder, any body weight or size. And yeah. that's what they started to see over time. That's important because everybody has these stereotypes from, you know, TV, Hollywood, whatever. And uh, they think, okay, anorexia looks like this and bulimia looks like that, you know? And uh, so what, what about the other case um, when, the family thinks something's wrong with your eating, but um, how can they approach the topic? Maybe the person's in the denial phase. Is there a denial phase? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I had a long denial phase. Again, it's partially because I thought, oh, it's not that bad. I'm not in the hospital. It's not like I'm only eating once a day. I was still eating three meals a day, but I definitely wasn't eating enough for what my body needed, evident mm -hmm. by how much I thought about and obsessed about food. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's definitely a denial phase. And so how can a, 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 a family member approach the person in this phase? Yeah, that was a question I had for quite some time. Even though I had gone through it myself, I still wondered what the best way would be to approach someone else mm -hmm. or, you know, what's the best way to approach me? Did my mom do it right? Um, so I've teamed up with Dr. Paula Quattromoni. She is the leading eating disorders and sports expert in the U.S. Oh, she wow. Fantastic. Yeah, I have a lot of great Q&As with her on my website, runninginsilence.com. 
So mm -hmm. I learned from her that usually the best way to approach these kind of situations is asking how the person is doing uh -huh. um, and understanding that the person you ask will likely be in denial, will likely say they're doing just fine, but uh, studies have proven that approaching someone and at least asking does help that person to start seeking recovery later down, like sooner down the road, rather than if you said anything at all. And so when you approach someone, you want to focus on behavior changes rather than, oh, it looks like you've lost a bunch of weight or hmm. you looked like you gained a bunch of weight. What's wrong? It's so give more, us an example of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, so it's like saying, you haven't been hanging out with us lately. You seem uh -huh. drawn. You seem isolated. Um, you haven't joined us for dinner the past few nights or last night. Um, it just, the biggest thing is it might be different for everyone. So that's yeah. why it's so important to notice just if there's basic behavior or mood changes in a friend. And that doesn't necessarily mean they might have a full-blown eating disorder. Yeah. They might just be struggling mentally and emotionally. And I think if we're more aware and willing to look for those things in the people around us, we can catch mm. these kind of struggles for other people a lot sooner. That's a really good tip. I would have never thought of that. You see, that's why I'm talking to you. Focus <laughs> on behavior changes. And those are good examples. Really good. I, I learned something already. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, so then how did you recover? It was a combination of many things. So mm -hmm. first talking about it helped. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went to a support group about eight months after I first said something. So it took a while. Again, I was still in denial. Yeah. I thought, oh, just a certain way of eating will fix me. And when I found out it wasn't fixing me, I mm -hmm. went to that support group and that broke the denial a little more because there were people at the support group of all different body shapes and sizes, but they had very similar thoughts to my own. And then I was blessed enough to be able to be connected with an eating disorder therapist. I know not everyone has access to a really good therapist like that. Mm -hmm. um, so even if anyone can find like some sort of counselor, hopefully that specifically works with the eating disorders, that is best. Hmm. And I also reluctantly later started seeing a dietitian, but she ended up being the biggest part of my recovery. She was uh -huh. incredible. She was an eating disorder and sports dietitian, so very specific. I felt like I could really trust her. She was so kind and sweet. She was really gradual about incorporating a proper meal plan for me. Hmm. She answered my questions. I'd email her freaking out about, oh my gosh, I ate more than you said on the meal plan. And she helped me to understand my hunger better. Hmm. And over time, through my dietitian, I began to see that my body was never broken in the first place. Hmm. She, it was like magic, like how this yeah. meal plan started working so well for me with her guidance. I'm just so thankful for her. Cool. Um, Can you mention her name? Because not all dietitians are the same, right? Yeah, yeah. Trina Weber. Uh huh. Yeah, okay. she's near in near Grand Rapids, Michigan. She okay. is actually in Kalamazoo now. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I suppose um, it's probably hard to find a, a good dietitian. 
Yeah. Well, the helpful thing about social media is I'm actually finding a lot of other really great sports diet, sports eating disorder dietitians. Mm-hmm. And some of them I would have loved to have known back when I was struggling. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. Run Whole Nutrition, I think is one. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mitten Dietitian, she's in Michigan. So yeah, there's a few. Mm-hmm. That have been really inspirational, just even on social media. I'm like, wow, I wish I could have known about you guys earlier. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, always what hindsight is 2020, isn't it? Yes. Well, so yeah. why? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. okay. Um, I was just going to say, I even when I was struggling just a few years ago, there weren't that many resources available. Mm-hmm. As or maybe there just wasn't as much awareness because now they even have programs for eating disorders specific to athletes, and I'm quite sure there was nothing much like that back when I was struggling. Yeah, yeah. Um, so your blog was in uh, pivotal in that, and why did you name it "Running in Silence"? That name just sort of popped in my head, and I was trying to think of a different name, and mm-hmm. that one just stuck. Mm-hmm. But it really embodied like what I was going through. I'd been running. Mm-hmm. My sport was cross country and track. And I was silent about the struggles I was dealing with while running. So my biggest thing with the blog is to encourage other people to stop running in silence and start speaking out about mm-hmm. what they're struggling with and get the help that they deserve. That's awesome. So then... Um, while you were recovering or afterwards, when did you get uh, the idea to write a book? As I mentioned, I'd always wanted to write a book and I thought it was going to be this fun book about running. I just didn't know it'd turn out to be a book about running and eating disorders. So (laughs) yeah, that was a bit of a surprise down the road. But I think when I started the website, I kind of had an idea that I wanted to write a book about the subject matter. And a lot of the eating disorder books I had been reading were mostly about just anorexia. Mm -hmm. Um, There weren't really many books about runners or athletes struggling with eating disorders. Interesting. Yeah. And I think it would be. Yeah. It's actually, there aren't that many. There's more coming out now. I think the Mm -hmm. first one is actually by an anonymous author called She Was Once a Runner. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first one or training on empty by Liz Britton is another, I think they were published in, around the same time. Um, and I'm sure I thought I read a book about an Olympic athlete swimmer struggling mm-hmm. with an eating disorder too, but I forgot what year that one came out. So there are more coming, mm-hmm. but I, yeah. So I sort of put together the book I had always wanted to read. I just wanted more information and resources out there. That's perfect. You made the book you wanted to read. So um, you were fully recovered at this point, and then you made the book, and then you, or how did it work? I started working on the book in January 2000, no, it was March 2013, in -hmm. college as an independent study project. Uh Uh-huh. And it took quite a few years to write it, edit it, figure out how I was going to do the whole publishing thing. I just graduated in 2015. Mm -hmm. So I was still kind of figuring out my life too. Um, 
what was the initial question? I just. But in 2013, you were still suffering and struggling. Um, yeah, yeah. So I feel like I wasn't fully recovered till 2016, which is actually, mm -hmm. I would say, the beginning of 2016. And mm -hmm. I had my book published November 2016. Oh, wow. So you didn't you have to change it a lot? I did have to change it along the way, the big editing process um, <laughs> yeah. that was involved in there. But I would say like most of the eating disorder was gone in 2015, but there were still, I wouldn't say I was fully recovered, but for the yeah. most part, it wasn't dominating my life. It was more in the disordered eating realm. So did you self-publish your book? It's a hybrid publishing. So I did get a publisher. He's a small publisher, Kohler Books, um, okay. in Virginia Beach. Virginia. Cool. Yeah. And so it's half traditional published, half self-published. Yeah, I know all about that. That's, um, that could be good. That could be good. Yeah. Uh, well, I had sent out query letters and a proposal to agents for mm. a little over a year to try mm. to get a traditional publisher and my yeah. market, like my platform just wasn't big enough. Hmm. I didn't yeah. know much about that yet. I'm learning a lot more, but yeah. I can see where, you know, publishers, have to really rely on someone they know is going to sell a ton of books right off the bat. Yeah, like Tim Ferriss or something. <laughs> yeah, yep. So, and my book is pretty narrow in its like readership. It's usually athletes or definitely specifically runners mm -hmm. struggling with eating disorders or disordered eating. So, but you you mentioned an interesting timeline there. You were done in 2016, and if you had traditionally published your book, like one when, when of the big companies, they might have held it for like three years before it even went to market, you know? It yeah. sounds like you were able to write it and publish it like in normal time, what a self-publishers call, you know? It was really fast. Yeah. I, I could do it again. I would definitely wait a little longer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I did want to get it published and it needed to get out there. Maybe it's part of the perfectionist in me that still wanted to edit a bunch of things, mm -hmm. but it was really fast. So next time I might take it a little slower, but I'm mm -hmm. really glad that we were able to get it out there because it's benefited a lot of people. And it's, um, it's on Amazon and where else? Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And I'm actually selling books through my website right now because they're out of stock on Amazon and Barnes & Noble at the moment. We're doing a small updated version of the book, but people can go to runninginsilence.com and order it there. Yeah. So the book is also called Running in Silence? It is. Yep. Awesome. Um, so if it's out of stock, that tells me you're not publishing through CreateSpace or KDP Print. You're... You're probably doing Instagram Spark or something like that. Do you know? Spark, yep. Okay. So, okay. So you're kind of like, um, yeah, you, you have to buy what, I don't know how many. And then is that like fulfilled by Amazon? Are you pushing to Amazon or how does that work? I'm still learning the ins and outs of Ingram. Um, okay. I'm talking with my publisher at the moment about how we're going to do the updates and work okay. through Ingram Spark. So. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's fine because that's a, a Ingram Spark has a, a big learning curve, and um, so you know the easy way is the what what, what used to be called Create Space, and now it's called KDP Print, yes. and that's you know you're on the fly there. You know you just upload your PDF and you can update it almost 
as much as you want. But, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. So Ingram Spark. All right. Well, I'm very interested in your experience with them. When you have more tips, then have to come back and tell me. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so um, this is really cool. So now you are a published author. You have this big struggle behind you and you have a really cool, high quality book with um, super important information. And so now you're starting a speaking career. Yeah, something I didn't expect going into this. Isn't that interesting? You didn't want to go there, did you? <laughs> no, I think I sort of suspected that if I were to get a book published, I'd probably have to do like readings or something mm -hmm. like when I was in high school and aspired to do this, but I didn't realize it was going to turn into like this eating disorder recovery, talking about eating disorder type mental illness thing, which I'm so glad it did turn out this way. Yeah. I would much rather do this than just some book readings. So, yeah. So do you know, um, what are you up into the hundreds or thousands? of people now for uh, your uh, public speaking or how many people uh, have you yeah yeah it depends on the venue so sometimes it's just a small group setting but usually it's larger because I'm speaking at colleges and universities mm -hmm. um, visiting some states I've never visited before I haven't mm -hmm. been outside the US yet hmm. um, yeah so definitely mostly schools mm-hmm and are you getting some feedback or people coming up after the talk and saying you helped me or something like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, that's mm -hmm. the best part about this because I just want other people to feel like they're not alone mm -hmm. and that they don't have to wait until whatever they're struggling with is bad enough. Like mm -hmm. they're so they're important enough to be heard. And I, I just remember how alone and confused I felt in my own experiences. And I don't want anyone else to feel that way. Yeah. So that's the biggest message I want to come across. And I know I've been able to reach people in that certain way um, mm -hmm. from the comments after the talks and even helping like coaches who have athletes who struggle with this. I'm a coach myself and I know what a big task that is on top of all of the other things we need to do as coaches. Mm -hmm. So to be able to connect with them too is really rewarding. It's awesome. So uh, you mentioned earlier you teamed up with a doctor. Uh, yes, Dr. Paula Quattromoni. She yeah. is a professor at Boston University. Um, she has been working in the field of eating disorders and athletes for many years. I saw a few articles from her come out before I even knew her. I met her at an eating disorders and sports conference in mm -hmm. 2017. Mm -hmm. and we just kind of hit it off. I gave her my book and she was super enthusiastic about it and has been promoting it ever since. That's cool. Well, I'm just so impressed with the work she does. So mm -hmm. it's been a really fun team effort. Dr. Paula Quattromoni? Yes. And is she going on the speaking tour with you? She's done quite a few speaking things at uh, conferences, usually specific to eating disorders. She's mm -hmm. been speaking with Davey Proctor, who is okay. from the UK. He is a professional runner. He ran for Boston University, and she helped him through his eating disorder. So they've been teaming up. Paul and I have been... We've done two presentations together when I was in the Massachusetts, Boston area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when's your next speaking engagement? It'll be March 11 
in Michigan. It's about almost two hours north. And then the next day I'm headed to Pennsylvania, Erie, Pennsylvania. Cool. Yeah. And um, so, so what's on the horizon now? You've, you've got a couple of things going now and you didn't think you were going to do the public speaking. Uh, so what's on your horizons now? So I started the nonprofit Running in Silence, mm -hmm. which is a little bit separate from the book. Um, so all speaking proceeds go to the nonprofit to continue mm -hmm. raising awareness. Um, and so I'm getting into the nonprofit world and trying to start some webinars so that mm -hmm. if I can't travel to reach a team or school, we can put together a webinar and people can view the information through that. I am working on my second book right now, mm -hmm. um, which is more about my, I guess, the tail end of the eating disorder and also finding myself outside of my sport. And I think oh, that- give us a glimpse. Can you do a, a, a preview of the title or something? Yeah, I'm working on the title still. It's so funny because I had a title immediately for the first one. And for the second one, which I've been working on since 2015, mm -hmm. has not ever, I've never thought of a title yet. It's got to have a good hook, you know, you got to make it good. Well, I talk about the breaking of my kneecap. The Ooh, how did you do that? Oh, yeah. Um, so they think it might have been a bone density issue hmm. and a combination of like low vitamin D and like the muscle contracting really sharply or intensely it was during a workout i was running and my kneecap just split Ooh, nasty that yeah. sounds painful it's so bizarre the whole thing was super weird did you fall down and get carried out on a stretcher no okay so we were doing a mile time trial on the track and mm -hmm. it happened with 300 meters to go Mm -hmm. And I kept going. I didn't know it was broken. I just felt like oh. something kind of shifted weird in my knee. And I sort of stumbled and was like, well, I got to finish this workout. <laughs> yeah. I Run finished. it off. Yep. Well, I finished it. I think the adrenaline helped a lot because it didn't hurt. It just felt weird. When was this? So, uh, fall 2013. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> it's healed by now, right? I hope. It is healed. I had to have two surgeries. They had to put two pins and a figure eight wiring in my knee. And I had mm. that for about eight months and then they had to remove it. And then I had another cross country season to compete in. So, so how is your, yeah. So you're still, you're still running, right? Your, how's your running career? I'm occasionally running more like through my coaching Mm -hmm. But part of it is my knee still hurts. I think more like the soft tissue area from all the traumatic knee surgeries. Mm. And I think I've also shifted my perspective so much to all these other things I'm doing outside of running. Yeah. So I'm more, I wouldn't say I exercise. I move freely. <laughs> like I like to uh, walk and bike everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I'm still pretty active, but I don't have a set schedule. Okay. Yeah. You were talking about webinars one minute ago. And yeah. did you know, if you're going to start doing webinars, that could be a very good and lucrative idea. As a matter of fact, so you're reaching out to these people and helping them from far away with webinars. You can start recording them. And then your best ones, you could actually package as an online course or just a video and sell it. So that's maybe a monetization idea for you later. 
Yeah, I've heard of that. And I'm still learning more about webinars too. So I'll definitely keep that in mind. Yeah, very good idea. Very, very good idea. Um, I've also had good experience with them. But anyways, yeah, it's something to think about. And um, okay, so where was I? So what's, what's on the horizons besides that? <laughs> Um, so we got the nonprofit, the second ah, book. Tell us more about the nonprofit. It's, it's to raise awareness. And this is your organization? It is, yes. Ooh, that sounds nice. Yeah. So it's mostly to fund the speaking engagements. And okay. if like teams are able to fund me coming to speak, they mm -hmm. can get a corporate sponsor to help cover the costs. So I'm trying to make more ways for this to be easier for people to have access to the talks. Right. right. Um, and then of course I can accept more donations through the website. We have to put up a donation page soon. Mm -hmm. um, and it can go to other things, um, supporting like videos mm -hmm. um, or projects other people are doing to raise awareness for eating disorders. So it sort of depends. Like I'm having an event this Friday. It's National Eating Disorder Awareness Week actually. Oh, this Friday? This week. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, but this Friday, so we have a bridge in Michigan that's being lit up in the eating disorder awareness colors, blue and green. Blue so, and green are the eating disorder awareness colors. Where does that come from? From NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association okay. in the U.S. That's a straight and, answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, Blue and green. Are, so are these going to be ribbons or banners or what? Um, it's just the colors that you can use for raising awareness. But like the bridge is going to be lit up in those colors. And I'm actually the Running in Silence nonprofit is funding that event. So um, we're having like a photo thing with anyone in the community who wants to come. We're going to be right in the bridge, in front of the bridge, get some photos, and that's part of raising awareness. Nice, nice. I'm, I'm looking at your blog, runninginsilence.com. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I don't, do, is there the, the Eating Awareness Week on your blog? I have not put it on the blog. Okay. I think. Or maybe I'm just in the wrong section, but a lot of cool stuff here. So I highly recommend it to anybody out there. Yeah. And... Yeah, so you're running a nonprofit now. That is really cool. And your next one, your next speaking engagement is March 11th. If people want to um, hire you, invite you, or whatever, get you for a speaking engagement, how do they do that? So they can go to my website, runninginsilence.com. Okay. I have a speaker page or a contact page. You can see it right at the top of the website. Yes, I do. Yeah. So if you go to the speaker page and you scroll down a little bit, it has all the information about the presentations. And then it says something along the lines of like contact Rachel to book a speaking event. Okay. Or if you hit the contact um, button at the top of the main page of the website, you can contact me there. Or easy enough, my email is silence at gmail.com. Perfect. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. So... What is your number one tip for people in this situation? Struggling with an eating disorder? Yes. Well, okay, I let's would... say the person with the disorder and then the family member. So number one is the person struggling with the eating disorder. 
Yeah, I would say to try to find a way for you to approach someone to share what you're struggling with if you haven't already. And I say this because I know there's so many people who are scared Mm -hmm. to admit it or scared to tell someone for fear that they won't react well Hmm. or be able to support in the right way. I was terrified of that too. And I just want to emphasize that I'm no braver than anyone else. I don't have anything special um, that helped me to speak up or made me recover. I, I'm just a normal person. (laughs) And yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I just want other people to believe in themselves that way too, that anyone can do this and speak up and that the more you speak up, the more empowered you can become. And if the first person you tell doesn't take it well, don't let that deter you from speaking up. Go find someone else who's going to listen and support, mm-hmm. but also try to seek some form of um, mental health professional support, like from a dietitian or therapist or counselor, just anyone who can support you professionally. It's and a pretty tough subject, isn't it? Breaking the really, ice. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, how to break the ice, uh, the, the initial uh, contact with the dietitian or the first person to talk to, you know, a lot of fear and shame going on there. So I can yeah. imagine that's the crucial first step. Yes, that was the best thing I ever did for myself. I'm so glad I did that. Mm-hmm. It was terrifying at first, but now yeah. I can so easily talk about it because I've had the practice and overcame mm-hmm. that fear. It reduces the fear to speak up. Yeah. Yeah, and you're much stronger now. Yes. That's awesome. (laughs) So, okay, what's your number one tip for the family member who's on the outside looking in or whatever? Yeah, so we mentioned how to properly approach someone. But if they approach you and say like, hey, this is what I'm struggling with, Mm -hmm. um, don't overcomplicate things. Like you don't have to diagnose anyone needs eating disorder. You don't have to fix it. Most of us aren't therapists and counselors. (laughs) Um, And that's okay. Like the best thing that my parents, family members, peers, coach did for me Mm -hmm. was listen and support. I didn't need their advice. They didn't really have the tools to do that. And I'm just, I'm so thankful that they were there to listen and support. That is so cool. And now you can hear it in your voice and I'm sure I've been looking through your website too in your public speaking. It's all coming out. It's very radiant. And uh, I think um, I, this is going to be a fun career to watch. I'm very interested in your nonprofit and what you do with your webinars. And yeah, so where can we reach you online? Um, so the website is runninginsilence.com. Mm-hmm. Again, my email is runninginsilence at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. My Twitter is at Rachel Style. Um, the okay. Rachel is spelled a little weird. It's R A C H A E L. And then Style is S T E I L. I'm on Instagram at Running in Silence. Um, you can find me on Facebook. I'm on the basic social media yeah. platforms. <laughs> cool. And your book is Running in Silence. It is, yes. That is so cool. Thank you so much for your time. Really inspiring. I, I, I would aspire to be as strong as you. <laughs> and um, I have to reserve you for maybe um, another podcast. 
That would be awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I will see you at the top. Sounds great. Okay. Okay, my friends, if you like that podcast, then remember to go to zbooks.co and go get all the materials to start your authoring career. We have a seven-day challenge every week, so there's no excuse to not finish your book. And remember, please go to iTunes and upload this podcast and Google Play. Okay, I look forward to seeing you at the top.